This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 18th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. It may be surprising, but the legal claim that illegal immigration rises to the level of a national emergency is somewhat distinct from the many claims that surround illegal immigrants in the United States. In this case, according to Cato's Will Yateman and Alex Narasta, the legal claim may be stronger than the factual claims that immigrants pose some specific danger to the United States. We spoke last week. What is the legal justification, aside from you know whatever qualities this so-called emergency uh, possesses? What are what are the legal justifications that either make this a hard sell or something on which the president is on solid legal footing? Alas, I, I submit that he's on a, a plausible legal footing. I mean, it's a fool's errand to prognosticate with how Article Three courts are going to come out. Um, but it, you know, the, the, I guess the the legal footing would be that Congress gave him this power. I mean, this is pursuant to a statutory delegation of authority. Um, you know, it, it's right there in the law. Um, I will note that in addition to sort of Congress giving away the farm on this, that is being at fault, the judiciary has a role to play here as well. Um, the judiciary has taken a very hands-off approach of oversight for presidential actions pursuant to congressional delegations um, via statute. Um, they they perform what is known as a facial review of whether or not there's you know of the underlying factual matter. So in this instance, as to whether or not there's a national emergency, um, precedent suggests that there's a national emergency if the president says so, um, and that's so sort of unique in administrative law that most agencies their actions are are reviewed under a more stringent standard known as quote unquote hard look review. Um, but the Supreme Court jettisoned that approach for presidential actions and. That's why we're here, or that's why the you know, in large part, why the president feels as though he's on plausible legal footing, and again, alas, he is. So, uh, with respect to the way courts look at delegations of authority, either to agencies or uh, to the executive branch itself, to the president himself, uh, is part of the reason that uh, courts give such deference to these delegations is that well, Congress can change it whenever they want. That's part of it. Um, so that would be sort of a background principle against which the courts are, are you know, adjudicating and, and rendering decisions in these sorts of cases. More so, it's, it's a, a sort of an ill-defined, and, and the jurisprudence of separation powers is, is very much that, ill-defined solicitude, if you will, for, for the president. Um, so there's one case in particular. I mean, l- listeners can go check it out. It's Franklin v. Massachusetts. I believe it was 1987, but the Supreme Court basically said the same approach that we take with agencies pursuant, you know, when they're acting pursuant to these congressional delegations, we're not going to take that approach for the president. And it was grounded in, again, this sort of ill-defined, you know, out of respect for his office and, and not much more. So um, it was poorly explicated as to why, you know, the courts take this hands-off approach, but it, it seems to be rooted in the amorphous law of separation of powers. So what specifically has Congress delegated to the president that uh, makes this more plausible? It's the act of, you know, it's a, a conditional statute, a, a, con- a conditional delegation. Um, that is, it, the Congress has enacted, I guess, all told, what is it, 133 such delegations? That, that is to say that when the president declares a national emergency, he is accorded, you know, these, these powers pursuant to the 133 statutes. One of those statutes, or I think three of the statutes are implicated in this, this wall funding bid. Um, and, you know, in essence, they, they loosely described, they say, if the president declares a national emergency, 
then he gains these sort of superpowers to, to uh, switch funds around, um, you know, that pertain to uh, the armed forces. So it's, it's you know, one of 130 odd such delegations. And it's by no means, you know, as Alex is going to discuss, um, it's, it's, it's implausible. Like if, if anyone gives it any, any sense of scrutiny whatsoever or any, any uh, effort of scrutiny whatsoever, um, it doesn't pass the laugh test. Nonetheless, because Congress has, has made this practice of delegating these huge amounts of lawmaking power to the president, and because the courts have taken this hand off, hands-off approach, even though it's laughable uh, in common sense terms, it's plausible in legal terms, which stinks. All right. Uh, to you, Alex, then, we've seen a fairly dramatic upswing in certain kinds of apprehensions at the border. Why does that not make for a national emergency? Well, we have had a fairly dramatic upswing in the number of people being apprehended, uh, but they are overwhelmingly members of families. They are family units, or they are what is called unaccompanied alien children, who are children coming here alone, the vast majority of whom are voluntarily turning themselves into Border Patrol agents and asking for asylum. This is very different from illegal immigration that was occurring uh, a decade or more ago, where it was mostly single Mexican men. Um, and a handful of families coming in. So we have a different dynamic here. They're turning themselves in. They're trying to ask for asylum. Furthermore, even if you don't take a look at that, you just take a look at the total numbers, we're still at pretty low numbers, um, you know, about what we had in the United States coming in annually in the mid-1970s. So by no means is that a uh, crisis along the border. Furthermore, the numbers of people that are sort of waiting on the other side of the border to come in, these sort of crowds of people, these caravans that are uh, uh, concentrating in places like Tijuana and one that's heading up to um, Texas are in large part a result of the government's attempt to regulate the entry of asylum seekers for which there's really no authority in any statute to do so, but what's called metering, where they are artificially limiting the number of people who can apply for asylum at each port of entry each day. So over a thousand people arrive, they say, okay, only 25 of you can apply for asylum each day, even though during the Obama administration, these ports of entries uh, uh, to the United States handled many, many more uh, asylum seekers per day than that without any kind of uh, big strains on Border Patrol. So with respect to the demands for a strong border wall, uh, it seems like the president has actually contributed to uh, you know, any at least professed need of, of it by treating people who are trying to come into the United States, uh, making it harder for them to seek asylum. Oh, that's correct. He's given an, an addition to what's going on. He's given um, three major justifications for declaring the emergency at different times. His supporters have also added in on this. The, the first one is crime. The second is sort of a national security slash terrorism slash invasion justification. <laughs> the last one is disease um, along the border. So crime, um, it's just taking a look at the 23 border counties in the United States bordering Mexico. Crime rates in those counties are lower than in the rest of the United States, in the non-border regions of the United States. In fact, the homicide rate there is so much lower, it's about thir uh, a third lower than the rest of the country. If the border homicide rate was nationalized to the entire country, we'd have about 5,700 fewer homicides last year. So that's how peaceful the border is as a result of from what's going on. Uh, furthermore, Border Patrol agents they have a murder rate on the job of being murdered about two per 100,000 annually over the last 16 years. 
um, that is one-tenth the murder rate of normal law enforcement officers inside the United States, and it is less than half of the uh, annual chance of just an everyday American being murdered in the United States over the same time period. So it's not a particularly dangerous job, even for law enforcement standards. And furthermore, the number of people being arrested entering the United States who are uh, who have been convicted of homicide is basically about 0.8 per 100,000, which is about one-sixth the national homicide rate in the United States. So there's not really a crime problem. National security, there's never been a terrorist who crossed the border who committed an attack on U.S. soil, let alone killed anybody on U.S. soil. And then when it comes to disease, the uh, immigrants who are coming here, the asylum seekers, the illegal immigrants from Central and South America, either have uh, rates of vaccination very close to those of native-born Americans or actually higher rates. The recent measles outbreaks we've been reading about in the news are mainly the result of American parents deciding not to vaccinate their children based on uh, fake science and and not the result of uh, immigrants coming in. So is there anything that the president has said to justify uh, this declaration of national emergency that holds water? There is not a single thing that I've heard him say, nor that any of his supporters are saying that will justify a declaration of national emergency. Speaking as a non-lawyer, just for a second, when I think of an emergency, a national emergency, I think of something like 9-11. I think of Pearl Harbor. I think of something uh, of of that scale. My rule of thumb is if about 80% of people don't think what's going on is a national emergency, then it's not a national emergency. And the fact that there's so much disagreement about this is just evidence in my mind that in the normal way in which people, non-lawyers like myself think about this, this does not meet the criteria. Here, here, if I could just jump in right there and just, just add to that, um, I agree with everything Alex said. I'll also note that Trump himself has said this is not an emergency. Uh, his exact words were uh, something akin to, well, I wish I didn't have to do this, but Congress didn't do exactly what I wanted. And ergo, it's an emergency. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that the Congress uh, wielded its power of the purse uh, you know, in its own fashion is in no way, I mean, that's essentially what he's saying is the emergency uh, by his own terms. So it's not just that it fails the common sense test, the sniff test. On his own terms, it's not an emergency. And and wasn't, was he not offered uh, money for this wall earlier in exchange for higher rates of immigration into the United States? Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Well, he was offered uh, a lot of money for the border wall in early 2018 as part of the DACA negotiations, um, basically trade legalizing about 700,000 of the DACA kids, giving them green cards in exchange for a sizable wall funding. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I believe it was about $10 billion in wall funding. He accepted that for about six hours or so. Um, and then he went back on it saying, oh yeah, also you need to cut green cards on top of that. Assume it's a year from now. This, I assume, will be in the courts. Will you say this is plausible? What does it look like a year from now? It's, uh, again, as I noted earlier, it's largely a fool's errand to prognosticate in these matters. Um, I'm holding out for the best. I'm holding out that that the, perhaps the Supreme Court would rethink um, its approach to reviewing presidential actions pursuant to statutory delegations and, and give it a harder look. Um, so I, I, I loathe to predict one way or another. I, I will say on a hopeful note, this strikes me as an excellent opportunity 
to sort of a reframe or, or rework the framework, if you will, for judicial review of presidential actions pursuant to statutory delegations. As a non-legal expert who is not afraid to make predictions, uh, <laughs> especially even when they turn out to be incorrect, um, I, I think there's a very high probability that the courts will just uh, some of the lower courts will um, uh, stall this a little bit, put in some some barriers, and join it maybe temporarily. Uh, but I think there's a very high probability that when it's all said and done, uh, higher courts will say that this is fine, just for the reasons that will laid out. I like Will, don't think that that was the original intent of the founders. I don't think you can look at the Constitution and find any justification for this. But frequently, as we've seen in in numerous cases, from Obamacare to the New Deal and everything in between, what the Constitution says and what the courts rule are frequently not the same. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Alex Narasta is an immigration policy analyst. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.